Glad that you can listen. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings, conversations with Christians about their lives and ministries. My guest today is Dr. Neil Watts. Neil is currently serving the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a pastoral mentor coach and church pastor. Neil has most recently been president of the South Queensland Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. In 1999, while Neil was president of the Western Pacific Union Mission of Seventh-day Adventists, based in Honiara in the Solomon Islands, he survived a plane crash into the ocean off Port Vila, Vanuatu. Neil and four other survivors spent six hours in the water before reaching land. In the first part of the program, Neil will tell us about this experience and what he's learned from it. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Barry. It's good to be here. It's good to uh, see you again. Thank you. Same here, yes. Why were you on that flight, Neil? Well, as part of my role as president of the Western Pacific Union, um, I had to take district meetings. And uh, at this stage, my wife and I were up at uh, Santo, one of the northern islands of Vanuatu. And I was up there to take meetings for almost a week. And uh, at the end of that week, uh, on the Saturday night, I had to fly back to Port Vila in order to catch a plane the next day to go back to Sydney for meetings. Was Joy on that flight with you? She was with me, but she wasn't on this particular flight that we're going to discuss today. What was different about this flight for you? Well, firstly, that Joy wasn't with me because uh, normally she would have been. And um, one of the good things about this story is that uh, she was asked almost unexpectedly to stay back and take some meetings the next day. And I'm so glad that uh, it worked out that way. The other um, difference about it, I suppose, was... um, um, that the pilot was different. Instead of getting on the plane and welcoming us and uh, telling us to put on our seat belts and that sort of thing, he just uh, got into the back of the plane where the door was, walked down the aisle, went into the cabin, shut the door behind him, started the engine, and off he went and never said a word. And that was the first thing that uh, was a bit strange to me. Mm. What do you remember about the flight itself? Well, we left uh, after sunset, but there's still a little bit of light in the sky, and it was quite a fine flight. It usually takes about 50 minutes in this Twin Otter airplane. But uh, about halfway through, a storm came up, and it began to get very turbulent, dark, lightning, rain, and uh, yeah, it became quite unpleasant. What time of year was it? This was in um, May. In fact, it was May 8 or 9, day before Mother's Day. Uh, May 8, I think it was, in the evening, yes. What happened in the minutes leading up to the crash? Well, as uh, time went on, and we, those of us who were passengers and the ones that I could see around me, we began to look at our watches and and uh, realised that we should be near landing. And uh, time went on, five minutes late, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And the plane was um, being bumped around a lot, and I remember thinking that this is the worst flight I've ever been on. I tightened my seatbelt. I had my laptop um, on the seat next to me, which was empty. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, eventually, when I began to think we were getting lost, I began to pray and just submit myself again to the Lord in case something did happen. Um, The pilot revved up the engines to full power. And at that moment, I thought, well, maybe he's coming into land and is a little bit low and needs to lift the plane up a little bit, or otherwise he's seen something in front, such as a mountain. And 
suddenly needs to avoid it. What sort of plane was it? It was a twin otter. It would take normally about 19 people. On this flight it had 12, including the pilot. Um, just a few seconds after that uh, roaring up of the engines, it, it went completely silent. And in that split couple of seconds, that's where a lot went through my mind as to what was going to happen because uh, we couldn't see anything outside. It was completely dark at the time. So you didn't know that the plane was getting close to the water? We didn't know where we were, whether we were over land or water or, or what. We we thought we should be landing, but the fact that he didn't seem to be preparing for it, we couldn't see the lights of Port Vila. And, so, uh, and the fact that we were about 15 minutes overdue made me wonder whether he was lost. Hmm. And uh, then the, the engines went very quiet, and uh, a second or two later, suddenly a, a bang, crash. We were thrown right forward. Fortunately, I'd tightened my seatbelt up fairly firmly. And, um, yeah, that was, that was where the shock came in. Um, immediately we, we crashed and were thrown forward. The... the cabin door or the cockpit door opened, burst open and water began flowing up the aisles and within seconds it was up to my knees. That was like a nightmare, quite a shock. And you were sitting in the back? Fortunately I was sitting at the back, yes, and uh, just opposite the the door actually. And there was a a man sitting next to the door, um, Wesley Rasu, a local man from Vanuatu, and in front of me a young couple from Perth. And... uh, there were others forward from us, of course, but we were the, the ones at the back. So what were you thinking and feeling when you managed to get out of the plane? Well, as soon as the water came up to my, my knees and, and uh, I think Wesley and also the man in front of me got to the door first, I was still struggling to undo my seatbelt. And um, so they opened the door and as soon as I could, I, I jumped out with them into the dark unknown and it was uh, rough seas, it was dark apart from the light shining from inside the plane. Rain was pouring down, the wind was blowing. It It was just like a, a real nightmare and uh, I can still see it in my mind now and, uh, and experience what it was like. It was chaotic. Mm. Did you have a life jacket? Unfortunately, no. What I did was I, I climbed up onto the wing, which was just above the water. By this time, of course, the plane was half submerged. And I took off my shoes and some of my other clothing, realising that uh, I was going to have to swim. And uh, I called out in desperation, I suppose, someone try and get some life jackets. And one or two floated out and uh, Wesley was able to put his arm inside the back door and, and grab one. So a couple of people had life jackets, but uh, I wasn't able to get one, unfortunately. How many people managed to get out? There would have been about, oh, I think it was eight people that got out of the plane, and so unfortunately four didn't, including the pilot. And, um, yeah, four, eight people got out, but in the end um, three of them, two of them didn't come with us or stay with us when we began to swim. We don't know what happened to them in the dark. One was a Frenchman, one was a local Vanuatuan um, lawyer. We know that much. But what happened to them we don't know. But six of us eventually stayed together for the mm. start. What confronted you and the other survivors at this point? Were you hopeful of rescue? Were you a strong swimmer? Were you afraid at this stage? It, it was sort of surreal to, to find yourself in the water, not knowing, of course, that we'd been over water at the time. Mm. I wasn't sure about that. And then to have this sudden crash and within seconds you're 
you're thrust out into the middle of the ocean and could only see the lights of Port Vera, Vera are probably, they estimate, 11 to 12 kilometres away. That was the only thing that we could see. And so, yeah, it was stormy and people were crying out. There was chaos. And uh, at that time, I, as I say, climbed up onto the, to the wing to try and escape that chaos. And then as the plane began to sink, I, I jumped into the water and swam with the others just away a little bit in case we were sucked in somehow. And to see that plane go down with the light still spinning on the tail and gradually going into the darkness and then to see that you're left on your own in the darkness, no one there to tell you what to do, miles away from shore in a storm, it was, it was very traumatic. But um, the Lord put it into my mind to, to um, try and use my pastoral background, I suppose, and uh, I then called out above the, the wind and the rain as loud as I could without swallowing too much salt water, which was hitting me in the face all the time. I cried out and said something about the fact that I was a pastor and that uh, we're obviously in trouble and I'd like to pray for us. And someone in the darkness called out, yes, please. So I, I as best I could, yelled out as loud as I could a short prayer, asking God to, to look down on us and... Uh, if it's in his will to, to allow us to be rescued or get to shore somehow. Do you think that was helpful to the other survivors at this point? I, it was. I've had a couple of comments from the other survivors since that time. I remember just the day after we finally got to shore, we'd just come out of hospital for observation, and one man who was not a believer, the uh, the man who was sitting in front of me, he uh, said, I'm, I'm glad... Um, I was with you and that uh, your prayer was answered by your friend upstairs or some words such like that. Mm. Was anyone injured? There was one man that came uh, with us uh, and the six of us who started off together because we said, well, let's stay together. And uh, I perhaps should mention that uh, we had two life jackets in our group of six. Um, One was the Vanuatu man. He had one and another man from Scandinavia he had one, and um, one had a whistle and one had a little light on the shoulder. And uh, the little light was a little glow that just surrounded us a few metres, and we decided to keep together within that glow if we could and keep swimming to shore. So the light didn't work on one of the life jackets? No, and, and the one with the light, um, it wouldn't inflate. I had to help Wesley inflate his and tie it on because the, the, the uh, tapes weren't working properly. So it didn't have a whistle. Um, didn't inflate without me manually fl- inflating it, and the other man had a whistle but no light. Did you share the life jackets around, or how did you, how did you utilise the life jackets? Not really. Um, I, I suppose we could have asked for that, but I I, I didn't feel to to want to do that. I did for a, uh, a half a minute at one stage just rest my arm on 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 his life jacket as we were swimming along just to try and catch my breath, but that was only momentarily. I was conscious that um, I didn't want to perhaps bring anyone else down or try and make it harder for others, and and so I, I didn't do that. I had to just swim on my own for, as you say, almost six and a half hours. Did the storm abate, or was it did the did it get worse? It eventually uh, abated to a certain extent. There was always small waves, but after an hour or two, perhaps two hours, um, it's it the sea started to calm down a little bit. We'd have squalls of rain which would come through from time to time and they were a blessing in disguise because they tended to calm the, the surface of the, of the ocean 
and also enabled us to put our mouths up toward heaven and get a, a little bit of fresh water on our tongues. Because I, I, I know for myself I was being hit in the face by waves and inevitably swallowing a certain amount of salt water mm. and tongue and lips were getting swollen from the salt water. So you had six hours in the water. Yeah, just just over six, that's right. That's and, a... and I'm not a good swimmer. Uh, I should mention that. It's uh, To me it's a miraculous that I'm here, but I, the most I'd ever swum before without touching the bottom or the end of a pool was about 50, maybe 100 metres. Okay. So uh, it was something that I... I wasn't looking forward to and didn't think that I'd ever come so out of. Did you take your shoes off? I did take my shoes off um, and socks. Um, I thought, well, the pockets and I think they were cuffs on the trousers and I thought, well, they'll fill up with water and yes. to make it easier to swim. So I had a, just a short sleeve shirt on and uh, and that was it. Was the water cold? It wasn't particularly cold at first. It's subtropical and more tropical. But after a few hours, your body heat um, dissipates and, and it I began to shiver and get uh, very cold. I know it's one of the least of your problems, but uh, were you worried about sharks? Uh, I was actually, especially in the first part of the, the swim. And I, there, there were things that were kind of touching your, your legs. I had bare legs and in the darkness and not being able to see what's swimming underneath you. Um, I, I did worry a little bit and I was almost beginning to think that, well, shall I say something? I was going to say, well, I hope there's no sharks here to the others who were swimming not too far away. And I don't know whether it was the Lord or what it was for common sense, but I I just kept my mouth closed and didn't say that, and I'm glad. I I would have perhaps only brought panic to them as well. But you know what? The the wonderful thing is, I think the Lord was involved in this, that it never entered my mind again for the rest of the night. Mm. Um, I normally would have been thinking about it a lot, but I didn't even think of sharks after that. And I'm just so glad that that happened. The fact that you had actually survived the crash and others had survived the crash uh, must have given you some sort of hope. Well, it did, and and I thought automatically, and I guess others did too, that a message would have got back to the airport, um, that a plane hadn't arrived, that they would send out someone, maybe they'd seen the plane, I don't know. And I was expecting that um, some boat would come and try and look for us. And um, unfortunately, nothing happened for a few hours. And I remember thinking at one stage, looking at those twinkling lights way off in the distance, why why isn't someone coming? Saturday night, are they all drunk in the hotel or mm-hmm. what's happened? <laughs> I didn't know. But no, that, that kept us going for a while because I, I remember saying to the others or calling out, uh, let's try and make sure we don't run out of energy too quickly. Let's try and keep afloat until someone comes. So what stroke did you use? Breaststroke? or Mostly breaststroke, yeah. yeah. If I did freestyle, I think I would have tired out a lot quicker. Yes. I did some side stroke as well. Yes. Um, one or two stages, I lay on my back and just kick my legs for a while to rest my arms, but mostly breaststroke. How did things progress? Well, after about an hour and a half, unfortunately, one of the men, um, a man from Britain who was an anthropologist, he was a friend of the, the man who, one of the men who had the uh, life jacket. He, uh, he dropped off in the darkness. We believe that he had been injured in the crash and uh, he called out to his friend up the front who either didn't hear or didn't want to hear, I'm not sure, and uh, called his name out. And I, I was the last one to talk to him, actually. I called out to him and said, try and um, not panic, keep afloat. You've got as much chance as the rest of us of being picked up mm. when someone comes. 
and that's the last we heard of him. Were you struggling with currents? We were. We were. We didn't realise so much at first, but after swimming for a couple of hours and realising that we didn't seem to be making very much progress, we must have been making a little bit, but, um, yeah, we were swimming against current, and so it was very slow going. Were you able uh, to stay together? How far, how yeah, far apart yeah. were you? Uh, within several metres, I suppose. The, the man, um, v- w- Wins, I think his name was, up the front, he... He tended to try and stay in the front with his life jacket, and but he would have been no more than, um, you know, five metres away, I suppose. Was that deliberate, trying to stay together? Yes, because we had said, let's try and stay close to the one light that we had and to, to keep encouraging one another. And I believe if we drifted apart, uh, it would have been harder to keep up the morale. What were you thinking during the swim? Uh, well... Some of it was just survival. Some was just trying to cope with the whole experience of of keeping afloat and monitoring your energy levels and um, but and thinking about what would happen if I don't make it. Um, I was thinking of my wife, obviously, and and uh, children at home, although they were grown up children. But those things in the in the early stages, and then of course thinking that well, surely someone's going to come and find us soon. Uh, when no one came, what were you feeling? Well, it was a little bit discouraging, I must admit. Um, after about four hours, looked at my watch and uh, it was what, about 11.30 or whatever it was then, about 11.30, yes. And no one had still come and I I thought then, well, we're on our own. They don't know where we are or they haven't got the message or something's happening, so... It began to enter my mind, well, perhaps I'm not going to make it and perhaps none of us will. And it was at that stage that I remember calling out to the others. I often wondered what it would be like to, to face death and have people near you who perhaps didn't know the Lord. And I think the Lord impressed me just to call out and share something about uh, the fact that if we don't happen to make it, we can still have confidence in Jesus if we... If we, uh, if we want to, that he can give us hope of eternal life if we want to trust in him. And I quoted a text or two that I'd used in a sermon that morning from John chapter 6. And so I, I did that. Um, after a little bit longer, I, it looked as though there was still no hope. And so I remember saying to Wesley, who was swimming near me, uh, look, if I, if I don't make this, and you do, please tell my wife that I loved her and mm-hmm. that I, I died at peace with God. And he, in a later radio interview, had talked about how my faith and so forth encouraged him and my prayers, but he also encouraged me at that stage because he said, keep going, brother, we'll make it, <laughs> being optimistic. And, and that, that helped me, and I, I appreciate what he said to me at that stage. Did you ever feel like giving up? I, I did, to be quite honest. Um, after about four and a half hours, I guess it was at least, I was just absolutely exhausted. I um, was cramping all over. I was tired. My, I'd swallowed a lot of salt water, and I just had no energy left, freezing cold, shivering. And so I lay on my back for a little while just to rest my, my arms and shoulders. And at that stage, I was, I was lying on my back looking up into the sky, and I thought, what's the use of keeping on going? Am I going to splutter, you know, go to the last splutter and, and just uh, drown then or... Should I just give up now? And uh, 
that was a thought going through my mind and that was when I had to, to make a decision as to what to do and I began to think that I ought to perhaps just dive down as deep as I could and open my mouth and get it over and done with. Yeah. Um, something happened then that changed that and this is a, a key part of the story that I'll never forget because as I, I might have mentioned that it was completely dark apart from that little glow of the light. There was no moon or stars that night. I don't I think there was no moon even if there had been no clouds because it was that time of year. But there's no moon or stars and I looked I was looking up just thinking what should I do and praying and just asking the Lord to to um, look after Joy and the family. And it was just at that moment the clouds parted right above where I was looking and for about five Ten seconds at the most, a bright star just shone straight down on me. And some might think that's coincidental, but to me that was providential. And I took that as a, a reminder that God, you're up there, you can see, we're in the darkness, but darkness is as light to you. And and uh, if you have a work for me to do, keep uh, keep me, keep me going, give me the strength. You found that encouraging. What about the others? Did they? I don't think they experienced that. They they were. On their front, they were yeah. swimming just ahead of me. I dropped back a little bit at the stage. I did you tell I, them about I, it? I, I did. Uh, late. I can't remember whether whether it was while I was still in the water or whether it was on shore. But I did tell them that later. Yes. Um, but to me, that was just a, a sign of hope and something that encouraged me. What were the dynamics within the group? Were people communicating regularly, trying to keep together? In the early part, well, we tried to keep fairly close together. I think. In the early part, uh, we were talking a little bit to each other and and um, a bit more hopeful, I suppose, trying to keep up the morale and keep us going until someone came to rescue us. And later on, we began to, as everyone slowed down a little, little bit, it got quieter. And I remember myself and others would say from time to time, keep going, you know, don't, don't give up. Just keep going. You're going well, especially to uh, the lady. There's one lady who was the... Um, wife of the husband. She was a doctor, actually, and um, she was getting slower and quieter, and I remember encouraging her. And Yeah, but as time went on, we got we got a bit quieter, and our energy was out. We were all a bit fearful, I suppose, things going through our own minds of wondering what was going to happen. Apart from that, the clouds opening up at that point, was there anything else that was encouraging at this point? Were you, could you um, see the lights getting closer? Not, not a great deal, and it was still. That's why I was prepared to give up almost at that stage because we we're so far from shore. But we did come into the point where we realised we must have been inside the um, the big bay. We could see a little light on the right and a little light or bigger light on the left, which was the area where we gathered the airport should have been or was. And um, yeah, I remember praying to the Lord then, please, Lord, it's hard for us to judge distance in the dark and at this level, at water level. So can you please help us to make the right decision? Should we get out of the current and go to the right or to the left? So what were the two choices? Well, one was the smaller light to the right. The other one was to the left, and it was a bigger light, so we didn't know what was there. We just knew that was the side where the airport was. We found out later that um, if we had taken the left side, we would have gone to a place called Devil's Point and been caught in a strong, notorious currents that would have taken us around that point and into rough seas and, and where sharks are, are known to be uh, 
with there. So we, we all decided, and I was impressed to go to the right, and I asked the others, and I said, which way do you feel we should go? And they all agreed too. You know? So I saw that as consensus that the Lord had guided us, and I'm so glad we went that, that way because it was by far the best decision to make. It was probably fortuitous that everyone made the same decision rather than having people wanting to go in different directions. Yeah, exactly. And I see the hand of the Lord in that because there was no indication to us as to which one was the best to go to. And uh, so, yes, I, I think the Lord impressed us all with the same decision because it was the best one. After four hours, you were exhausted. Mm-hmm. How did you manage to keep going? Well, as I said, that star gave me fresh courage, and I think the Lord uh, just gave me that. I mean, the others were tired as well, but I was by far the oldest of the group and uh, not sure I was the fittest. I, I was healthy, but, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't really know how they felt. But what, what encouraged me was the, the, the Lord uh, giving me that sign. And also I began to think of, um, of the work that I was doing and who I was representing, and I, I prayed to the Lord several things. One was, Lord, help me if I get out of this to that you'll loosen my lips that I might be able to praise you more. Mm. that I might be more expressive of my love for my family. But I said also, please do something to give our people a sense of hope because there were certain things happening at that time that uh, were discouraging. And uh, I wanted to to um, have people, I knew they were praying for me, I, I was sure of that, and I wanted to give them something to be glad and rejoice about rather than to to be sad and grieving that their, their church leader drowned in in their territory. Hmm. Tell me about the last part of the swim. Well, um, eventually uh, we we got to the place where we, we could just see a little band of greyishness in the, on the horizon and we imagined and thought that that was um, perhaps a beach, and it was. As we got closer to that, uh, the water was calmer and it was just a matter of keeping alive and keeping our energy up to get there. I was badly cramped at that stage and really exhausted. And I, I guess another hour or so, at about six hours after the plane crashed, we could see a beach up ahead and we could hear uh, the sound of waves and it sounded noisier than what it turned out to be. And um, yeah, I began to worry a bit about then as to what it would be like coming to shore. But um, so eventually we, we came in close enough. We saw a yacht uh, launched out in, or anchored I was able to touch the reef, and as I sat on that reef uh, just for a moment and rested my so legs... You when your feet touched the reef? Well, no, how... well, my hand touched it. And, okay, and, uh, so it was pretty shallow. Well, well, the reef was, yeah, at this stage, only probably 150 metres from shore, I suppose, something like that. And I was able to just rest on that for a couple of seconds, and it was then that my legs both cramped up in absolute agony, and I... I was in tears and I, I remember it was just so painful and I thought later if if that had happened five minutes before in the deep, um, I wouldn't have made it. So I was fortunate to have made it that far. So then we, we just we swam in and got to shore and just collapsed on the beach, absolutely exhausted for a few minutes before we tried to stagger. There was, there was a light close by? There was one up on the beach, just not far away. We, we eventually got our, stood up and... Um, I called them together. We we stood around in a circle on the beach. This was about, um, what, 20 to 2 or something in the morning. And I just said, let's let's come together. And I, we put our arms around each other, and I, I prayed again. The second time I'd prayed aloud for them, and 
just thank God for his mercy and and um, the fact that we'd reach shore and uh, to help us to remember the the resolutions and things that we had gone through in our mind during that swim. Then we walked up and we saw it was a a, um, a sea container. A man who was living in the sea container, he had a light on outside. We knocked on his door. He was an expatriate man. He let us in. Fortunately, he had a telephone and gave us hot drinks and some blankets to warm us up a bit and we were able to ring the, the mission office and also the ambulance and police and let people know what had happened. Describe your sense of relief at this point. Oh, it was it was just amazing. <laughs> just um, so grateful, so thankful. I think they all were that we had made it at last when it looked so hopeless for, for six hours almost. It looked hopeless. And we were still miles away from the lights of Port Vila, so if it wasn't for this seeing these lights and coming into the to the um to the peninsula into the beach we would have what been. happened to that search party well it was a strange thing someone had um, sent a message that they had heard a crash up into the mountains and apparently the the um, ambulance and services had gone up into the mountains and the strange thing was um that about 3 hours after the crash the Australian high commissioner and the police commissioner of Vanuatu came to our mission headquarters and said the plane has been found and there are no survivors. We still don't know how that rumour got there, but that's what these two official people, who you think would have known the facts, that's what they came and told us now, or told the uh, staff. Fortunately, I mean, my wife had known and been told, um, woken up in her sleep, that we the plane was missing, but she was hoping and praying that I'd be alive somewhere or swimming somewhere. Um, but they decided not to tell her this news until after I was found and mm. and rescued. And I, I thank God for that, that they had the wisdom not to, to tell her that. It saved her that grief that she would have gone through in those few hours. This mm. wasn't the first time that you had a brush with death recently, was it? No. In fact, it was, a well, a fourth time, third or fourth time, really. Um, and that came to my mind after I had seen the star and kept swimming. Um, and thinking in that time, the, the experience of the last 18 months came to me. When we first arrived on the very first day, we were taken through Honiara in our car and in a four-wheel drive, and in the middle of heavy traffic on the other side of the town, the, the steering broke. The very first day we were there. And uh, I just prayed, Lord, save us, and the car veered in between and out traffic and buses and eventually slid alongside a fence off one side of the road, and we were uninjured. Some months later... Um, my daughter came up from Australia. We had a Sabbath afternoon where we went down to a country village, ran some meetings or in the morning and then came back in the afternoon. And I had a borrowed four-wheel drive and on the only decent piece of road in the Solomon Islands, I was doing probably 90 kilometres an hour when suddenly the back wheel seized up and it was a struggle to keep the, the car on the road and it was tending to veer and slide sideways and there was a big truck coming toward us I prayed again, the Lord, please save us. And the, the car sw- swung over and went into the side of the of the road into tall grass, almost slipped over and, and didn't. We had to be pulled out. car wouldn't start. The wheel had seized up. We prayed again and eventually the, the car started and we went. No problems. The next day the mechanics checked it out and couldn't see any damage or any reason why that would have happened. And then there was one other that I won't take the time but to tell, but it was in Papua New Guinea this time when I was visiting over there and uh, almost died again 
in a, uh, in a in a crash. So this was the fourth time, and it was at this stage where I began to think of what was happening here. It wasn't just me. This was something bigger, and I saw it as a spiritual battle going on. I thought of those three instances, and now this one. I thought of what had been happening in the Solomons, where there was ethnic conflict, where our church was involved in trying to, to bring peace, and yet some of our members were also involved in it. There was a spiritualistic movement, Moro movement, that was trying to get rid of um, Christianity and um, Western civilization. They were influencing some of our members, even in the rural areas, because of the miraculous things that they were doing through satanic power. And there's also a group in Port Vila where the crash occurred uh, that were saying that our church was apostate and they were drawing off members to their church. And I, I thought, this is a spiritual battle. If I die here, it's going to be a victory for, the, for Satan. And so I strangely shook my fist up at the sky and said, Satan, you get out of the way. Jesus is stronger than you are and, and he's going to get me to shore. And I smile at that now, but that's, that's what I did. So I, I then prayed, Lord, please again, give your people something to praise you for and, and allow me to be able to share to people far and wide that, uh, your grace and mercy in, in delivering us in this incident. Some people who are listening to this program will say at this point, okay, so you survived, but why didn't the others survive? How do you mm. make sense of the whole experience, mm. Neil? Yeah, that's always a difficult question. We're not God and we don't know the reasons why, but I, and God doesn't always save. That's, that's a fact. Uh, this life is not all there is. Um, disciples of Jesus, you know, died. people have died all along in crashes or natural deaths or being beheaded or whatever. And so uh, we are in the middle of a... Of a great controversy, a, a universal conflict between good and evil. And the Bible makes that clear. And uh, I know that God doesn't always protect, but he, he will answer our prayers eventually. It may not be till Jesus comes, but um, sometimes he answers them now according to his will. We don't always know his will. I make sense of it, though, by thinking that it was because who I represented and because what was happening around me, that it was a, a battle of, of two forces and I wanted God's side to win. And I believe that if I had died, then it would have been seen by many as, as a victory for Satan, that God wasn't strong enough to save his church leader in this example. And the people would have yeah, had their faith really tested, and I didn't want that to happen. So I, I'm just glad that I'm one of those who are fortunate enough to have survived something like this. What's been the outcome of your story? Has it been helpful to other people, encouraging? It has for many people, not only in the church but elsewhere. And and one of the things I prayed was, as I mentioned, that I might be able to have the opportunity to share my faith out of this. And and that was, to me, um, an amazing thing. That Since that time, I had radio interviews on ABC and overseas stations, came back to Australia a few days later, and I was on Current Affair program with Mike Mon Munro, um, newspaper articles, I got dozens and dozens of articles from England and Europe and Canada and Australia, which all, every one of them said something about my faith and prayer, even in the headlines. Um, and ABC interviewer who was sceptic, but he allowed me to um, talk about how my faith impacted that story. And, and Mike Munro himself introduced it on the Current Affair program. So I was able to share a little bit, and to me that was a wonderful thing, and I promised the Lord that I would be willing to share this story wherever I had the opportunity if it brought honour and glory to him. What have you learned from the experience? 
Well, a couple of things. I've mentioned a few of the lessons, I guess, that I've learned um, already, but one of them, of course, is the the power of prayer. Even though we don't always have it answered the way we do, we know that prayer is powerful. And I sensed, as I mentioned, that people were praying for me, and that encouraged me. And I found out later that they were. They had special meetings in Vanuatu, in the Solomon Islands they'd heard, and they were praying for me, and I could could sense that, and that encouraged me. I also found uh, or remember and learned that it's important to look for opportunities to share your faith when you can. You never know when you're going to see someone again or what's going to happen. We don't know whether we're going to be alive tomorrow or not. So it's important to look for opportunities to encourage you or share our faith with people. I, I learned too that um, we, we need to have a, an assurance of salvation. I, I wasn't afraid to die and I, I was so glad that that Assurance of salvation stayed with me. I had often thought when it came to the crunch, how would I feel if I thought I was really going to die? And I thought well, that's a, an important lesson to, to share with others to make sure that we all can have that confidence. Thanks um, for sharing your story, Neil. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Neil about his early life and influences and why he became a pastor. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Before the break, I was talking with Dr. Neil Watts about his um, survival experience of a plane crash in Vanuatu back in 1999. In this part of the program, I'm going to be talking with Neil about his early life and his experiences and why he became a pastor. Neil, where were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, I was born, Barry, in Perth, Western Australia, and grew up there all my life until after high school. Yes. What about your family? Well, I was uh, one of four, four boys and uh, a sister, an adopted sister. My father was a um, bodybuilder, a mechanic bodybuilder. My mother didn't uh, have a job outside the home. We were just a fairly poor um, working class family living in the suburbs. Where did you fit into the family? Uh, I was about in the middle. I had two brothers older than me and then the two younger children. What was life like in your family? I have pleasant memories overall of my my family. It was a Christian family. My mother was a Seventh-day Adventist and my father was a Christian but belonging to a different church in those early days. And um, I was fortunate enough to do very well at school and in sports and my dad was sort of took a special interest I think in me and so I I wasn't a spoiled child but uh, I felt loved and and supported by my family. 
Tell me about your spiritual journey and your conversion. Well, even as a, a young boy, I was had a kind of a spiritual bent, I suppose. I, I uh, felt a commitment to God. When I was um, just about to enter high school, actually, I... I was quite interested in in studying the Bible and and uh, wanted to be baptized. I'd gone to some evangelistic meetings. My father had started to go as well, and it came to the place where I, I had decided I wanted to be baptized. And I said to Dad, too, Dad, why don't you come and join with me? He had started to have a few studies with Pastor Bob Bossingham at the time, who was our local church pastor, and and. I'm just so glad that he he agreed, and so I was baptised in the same time as my father and and my next older brother, and that was as I say when I was quite quite young. Did you have any thoughts about Christian ministry at this point? No, um, I'd been going to a state school, government school, and I did that through my high school as well. I was the only Adventist in a big high school of about 1,600 students, and that was a challenge to my faith. But I I praise God, I was able to survive that and uh, some mocked me and I had to you know get out of sporting events and out of teams because they played on on Saturday and those sorts of things but I had no intention of being a pastor I had thought I'd be a teacher or possibly a doctor and it wasn't until I was about 16 I suppose a year before I finished high school I was at a camp meeting in Western Australia and uh, one morning a man from the general conference pastor Eel Minchin took a meeting, a combined meeting on Sabbath morning before breakfast and he made a call for young men, mostly I guess, to uh, to respond to a call to become pastors and serve the Lord and before I knew it I was up out of my seat and walking down the front to respond and I, I had no intention of doing that before and it was the Spirit of God who just got me up out of my seat and quite a few others who are and, and currently pastors and and some who were, um, came at that time as well. So it was something out of the blue, but I've, I've never looked back since. And I Do you think God had know. been working on you prior, I, prior I, to that time? I think so. He, had, he must have been because I was interested in spiritual things and in learning more about the Bible. And I even had a teenage girlfriend who bought me for my 16th or 17th birthday um, a commentary by Martin Luther on the book of Romans because she knew that I'd be interested in that sort of thing. So I guess uh, so, but I, I didn't realise what it was. I just thought I'd perhaps be a Christian teacher in a school or doing medicine. I wasn't sure. After that point, did you ever waver in your decision? There was a little bit of a waver for a few moments, I guess, when I finished high school. I got a, a scholarship to go to university to do medicine if I wanted it. In those days, you had those scholarships. And uh, I guess I wondered whether I should do medicine and then perhaps pastoral work later or whatever. And it was tempting a little bit, but I didn't um, didn't hang on to that. I, I was really committed to, to go and be a, a pastor and a worker for God in the ministry. Well, there is a tradition in the Adventist church of having um, doctors and, and pastors or doctors yeah. becoming pastors and, uh, mm. and so forth. So I guess that was a, a bit of an appeal for you at the time. A little bit, and then even later on, when I was older and married and been in the church work for a while, I was a missionary, and a young missionary out in Papua New Guinea, and I'd seen the needs of the people, and I was almost going to see if I could perhaps pull out for a while, go back to university and study and become a, 
a doctor and then a missionary doctor, but I was persuaded to go ahead with a Master's in Theology instead and sponsored to do that, and I, I'm glad I did. It would have been a long course, and I'm not sure with a family at the time I would have survived it, and who knows what would have happened. Mm. I may have been taken away from ministry altogether. So um, it was a temptation then, but only from the sense of perhaps making my work more effective. What was your motivation at the beginning? Well, I guess it was to answer a call to uh, serve God and to help other people to to know about Jesus and the hope that we have and to be ready for the coming of Christ. Has that motivation ever changed over time? No, no. And I, I thank God and all the different things that I've worked at in the church. It's I've never regretted that decision or, or any place that, or, or any call that I've accepted. I've um, I've been blessed, really, I, I must admit. Where are some of the places you've worked? I worked in Victoria as a, um, a youth pastor and assistant to an evangelist, then a pastor and evangelist. And then I went uh, was called to Papua New Guinea with my young family, two little toddlers. We and my wife, we went up to the um, northern part of the island of New Ireland, uh, right up near the equator, and we served there for three years. Then went to Port Moresby as a district director and then across to teach in the ministerial department at Fulton College in Fiji. And after that, went back to Australia and various places in Australia. And then uh, later on, when we opened Pacific Adventist College or university as it is now, I was called back to go and uh, be one of the first staff members there on the theology department and church pastor. What was the area of ministry that you liked the most? It's hard for me to, to pinpoint that because I, as I said earlier, I, I've appreciated every every aspect of the work I've enjoyed, uh, been called to do. And I've I enjoyed the teaching part, um, teaching pastors, training pastors. Very satisfying now when I see a number of them in key leadership positions around the Pacific. I enjoyed my uh, work as a church ministries director or a trainer of members and, and uh, in personal ministries and so forth. I found that satisfying. I've been a conference administrator for 15 years and I enjoyed that too. It could be stressful at times, but I appreciated the opportunities that gave me and I felt God was leading me. I was able to do doctoral studies in that area, which um, helped me, I think. I wouldn't have had that chance if I hadn't have taken those positions. And so I've also enjoyed pastoral work and studying the Bible with people and uh, relating to people in the church, having a church of my own. So whatever I've done, I've, I've really enjoyed and I wouldn't change anything. What does your faith mean to you, Neil? Well, my whole purpose for living is, is really related to that. I often ask the question, you know, where have we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And what is my purpose in life? If you don't have a faith and a trust in God and his word um, and the hope of eternal life and the coming of Jesus... Life is really meaningless. So my faith is what keeps me going. It, it's what motivates me. And I guess since my my plane crash story, it's even more relevant. I, it's like an anchor to my soul. I know that I've been through that experience, that God didn't leave me, that I've I survived that with his blessing and help. And so I, I couldn't turn away from it. It's, it's everything to me. You've had a rich life. But as a Christian, your your hope is really centred in the future, isn't it? It is, yeah. What are you looking forward to in the future? Well, ultimately, of course, uh, 
Jesus coming back and spending eternity with him and his people and our loved ones. In the future, I, I'm now in my 60s, um, and uh, I guess my energy and abilities won't get any better, but I, I look forward to still working as long as I can, whether it's um, part-time or just simply as a volunteer in, in serving the Lord and preaching the, the good news. I go each year to an overseas destination to conduct evangelistic meetings, outreach meetings, and uh, we see baptisms from that, and that gives me a lot of satisfaction. And I'd like to do that or train laymen or help ministers. Those are the three areas that I'd like to keep doing as long as I'm able to. How do you relax, Neil? Um, well, now that I'm part-time ministry, I suppose, and not working full-time, I, it's more relaxing. But I, I use time in... Um, I do exercise. I play tennis twice a week. Um, I keep myself as fit and healthy as I can. I relax by reading. Um, there's always things on the emails and internet that I've got to look after and follow through. Uh, a little bit of gardening occasionally. I don't have a lot of hobbies as such, but I... What sort of things do you read? Oh, well, I read lots of um, things that relate to, to ministry. I mean, I appreciate and am interested in apologetics or the reasons for our faith, defending the faith. I, I would love to be able to have discussions with atheists and people who have, have left Christianity and try and show them the, reason, the, the rationality and the validity of Christianity and of Christ. And so I like reading things in that area. I'm not a reader, reader that uh, looks at novels and things like that too much. Bible things, theology, they're the areas of greatest interest. I keep up with the news, of course, as well, and current affairs, but um, they're not my main focus. Now, your wife, Joy, also has a special ministry. What's that? Well, she's been in, in, invested in or interested in, involved in prayer ministry over the years and women's ministries when she was out in the islands especially. She was prayer coordinator for the... Western Pacific Union. Um, these days, she's not um, able to do as much as she'd like to do, but she's interested in prayer ministry and and uh, helping people through whether it's just through Facebook or telephone calls and praying with people and that sort of thing. Tell me about your family, your children. Uh, we have two children and three grandchildren. Uh, my son's in Sydney. Uh, he's a businessman there in a company. Uh, my daughter's uh, in Melbourne. She's um, she has a PhD. She's involved in writing and uh, reviewing of films and books and that sort of thing. Yeah. What have you learned from your life, Neil, that you'd like to share with us? We've talked before about what you learned from the experience of the plane crash. But what have you learned that you think everyone really ought to know? Let me perhaps relate one still related to the plane crash before I move on. When we were coming to toward the shore, and I mentioned that we saw the, the shore and we heard the waves, etc., I was in a fairly exhausted state and my mind, mind began to think a little bit negatively, I guess. I thought of the possibility of um, stepping on us on the reef and being cut and, and maybe standing on a poisonous fish and and then being tossed about by the waves on the reef and being all cut up and so forth and and bandaged up. And then I, then I think the Lord must have woken my mind up and I thought, 
well, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, if I can make it to shore after this experience, I don't care if I'm bandaged up in hospital for a month. I'll at least be on the shore. I'll have made it. I'm alive. And as I've thought of that, I've, I've thought of life. We can have lots of discouragements and things that might mess up our life and we we, we might see difficulties come and problems come. We may, as we get older, we face ageing. Uh, people might face um, you know, pos- prospects of dying through cancer or some other thing or there might be other discouragements that come, family problems, whatever. But I just want to look beyond today because, as I said earlier on, this life is not all there is. The Bible tells us that this life is is like a pilgrimage we're passing through here and this is a preparation for eternity and I believe that when we get to the the shore as it were to eternal life when Jesus comes it'll all be worthwhile we won't have to um, look back and regret that we've ever made it this far we'll say those things were nothing compared to to what God has in store for us mm. And so I've tried to take that long view rather than be concentrating and focusing on day-to-day problems or discouragements or whatever, to think ahead and say, well, in the end, it's going to be worth it. Be patient. God's still got his hand in things. So you basically set your sails with the big picture in mind. Yeah. And and I learned one of my favorite texts, in fact, is one that uh, my father actually used to say. He, he was not a great reader or educated man very much, but... Um, he, he used to, to, to use this text as one that he would remember when we were always asked, what's your favourite verse? And it's a, it's a well-known one, Proverbs 3, uh, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And I've, um, I appreciate that text. I've tried to follow him. Um, I, I haven't always... Um, or sometimes I haven't sort of just relied on him. I have leaned on my own understanding from time to time, I must confess. But overall, I believe that God will lead us and direct our paths if we put him first. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And I, I believe that. That should be the aim of, of all of us. And I I thank him that he's that kind of God. I, I just want to perhaps take a minute to share uh, one other verse that's amazing to me. It's not related to that last one, but in Isaiah 57, there's this thing that interests me because I I like thinking of apologetics and I like thinking of this philosophically of God and the great creator God and how do we fit into this in this huge universe and we're just a little planet out in the back blocks. And this text has uh, amazed me. It says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, and so forth. But this concept of God, this high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, who dwells in this heavenly place, and yet also with him who is a contrite and humble heart and spirit. That, to me, is, is the wonder of the Incarnation, that this infinite God can come down, as it were, be concentrated in Jesus and, and become a man, but also with us too. This, this high and lofty God is not so, so beyond us or apart from us that he's not interested in the details of our lives. And that, to me, is marvellous. And uh, 
keeps me going. There are going to be some people who are listening to our program today who have experienced disappointments or crises, uh, maybe even su- survival stories similar to your own. I'm wondering whether you would like to offer a prayer for our listeners now with a special reference to those people who are um, perhaps trying to make sense of some experiences in their lives. Mm, okay. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today that you are a God who is loving and gracious, that you are the creator of the whole universe. You are high and holy and beyond our comprehension, and yet you have promised us in your word that you are interested in us, that you'll dwell within our hearts and lives if we are humble and contrite in spirit. And so today, Lord, we want to thank you for your leading in all of our lives, even though it may sometimes seem as though we're on our own or that you haven't heard our prayers. I know, Lord, that you do hear our prayers. Some of them won't be answered until the resurrection or until Jesus comes. But in the meantime, I want everyone who's hearing this prayer today to remember that you are a loving God, that you have our best good at heart. You're not willing to condemn people. You're looking for excuses to save people. And that even though we're caught up in this whole controversy between good and evil, there are reasons some that we don't understand, but we know that your honour and your justice is at stake. And so I just want to encourage people today, Lord, that they will hold on to you, not give up, no matter what their circumstances are and what troubles they may have gone through or are going through now. May they find courage and hope in the promises of your word. May they see beyond the present and the difficulties and discouragements that they may be facing and just uh, remember that in the end, when Jesus comes and we can spend eternity with him, everything that has happened to us will seem insignificant compared to the wonders that you have for us for the rest of eternity. So, Lord, we thank you for your promises and I just pray that all of us, no matter what circumstances we are in, Everyone who's hearing this program today, may they feel encouraged and want to surrender their lives to you, to find acceptance with Jesus and to have the hope and the confidence in eternal life, to not fear for their future or their spiritual future either, but to rest in Jesus and to trust him when he says that if you believe in me, you've passed from death into life and will not come into condemnation. We look forward to that time when Jesus comes. And may we all be found ready to meet you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with another fascinating guest on life learnings. Bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.